Yes, 1 Kings chapter 8. Like I said, a very lengthy chapter, but we looked, remember, at uh, chapter 7 last week. It was a fairly lengthy chapter as well. Just speaking of the preparations for the temple and the buildings of the temple, and not only was it uh, building the temple itself, but there were also, remember, many other buildings, including Solomon's own palace, that were built, and, um, and they were all part of a compound there in the uh, just to the, the west of the, what you and I would call the Temple Mount. And, um, and so we looked at that. And uh, tonight, and we are going to look at chapter 8. And, you know, after all of these things are in the temple, you know, we've got the, the temple proper itself. And certainly the priests were all ready to go. And, but yet there was one piece that was missing, the most important piece was the Ark of the Covenant. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And so David, or excuse me, Solomon now, is going to bring that Ark of the Covenant finally into this new temple that he has built. And he's going to not only um, bring it into the temple, he's going to, um, he's going to be praying, uh, in, in, uh, like a, a prophetic prayer actually, and I think you'll see that as we go along, he prays over this this uh, event of bringing the, the temple and, and finally bringing the Ark of the Covenant in it and beginning their times of worship. And so Solomon is going to spend some time in prayer and it's going to be prophetic and he's going to dedicate the temple. He's going to bless the assembly and he's also going to dedicate the temple by offering several thousands of sheep and bulls. And it's going to be something that if we were to see the, the dedication, the, the ribbon cutting, if you will, of the temple, most of us would be put off because what we would see is a lot of blood. Seriously, I think it was like, I forget how many, we'll see it when we get, but like 132,000 sheep or something like that, and several thousand oxen, I believe. And so we're talking, and in fact, he had the, the altar itself, the great altar that was there in the court was not big enough to handle. So he had to consecrate the inner, the middle court and erect another altar or have another makeshift altar to handle all of the sacrifices. So this was something that you and I would probably not want to go to. It's not like some kind of uh, gala ball. And such is the, the, the state of man. You know, we're always looking at the externals and we, we fail to remember that it's, there is no forgiveness except by the shedding of blood. And that is at the center of a temple. A temple is designed to have sacrifices done in it. That's what a temple is. It's a place where worship is offered, where death occurs. And certainly in the Jewish temple, it was substitutionary. All of these things that we're looking at now are going to be foreshadowing of ultimately Jesus Christ. The temple itself and the decorations and the beauty internally of the temple speaks in many ways of Jesus, our Savior, but also in, in the sacrifices and all of those things that had to be done daily and, and, and you know, many times, you know, just daily, year by year, week by week, month by month, the same thing. But then finally, all of this was a foreshadowing of when Jesus would go to the cross and die once, the Bible says. He died once for sins. There's no more need for sacrificial animals. He died once because his sacrifice was perfect. 
He was the perfect Lamb of God, God come in human flesh. God, the very blood of God was shed and only could be shed to take away our sins. And all we have to do is simply believe in what he did and trust in his saving grace for what he has done. And the Bible says if we believe in that, we will be saved. And see, that's the message that everybody needs to, to hear. And that's why we are very glad to have it. So let's look at verse 1 here, because like I said, it's a very long chapter. Notice, now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes of the chief fathers of the children of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. And remember, I said it before, the Ark of the Covenant is the, is the centerpiece of this temple. In fact, it was built for this piece of furniture. This ark represented the very presence of God. And God, when it was in the temple, he would actually, and as we will see, his Shekinah glory will rest upon it. And he will meet them at the mercy seat. He says, I'll meet you underneath the cherubim. He's going to meet us there. He's going to meet them there. Because that's where blood is offered on that mercy seat. And that's the only thing that God can see. He sees the blood that was poured out for his people. And therefore, he can accept them. But notice, in the tabernacle, it was the only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies, um, in, in the tabernacle, that is. But now, in Solomon's temple, there were three articles in the Holy of Holies. We certainly had the Ark of the Covenant, but remember, we now have these two 15-foot cherubim that were made out of olive wood, um, overlaid with gold, looking in, or their wings spanning over the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the, co- uh, the Ark of the Covenant, remember, on the mercy seat, the the, the top of that, it was also two cherubim looking down on the blood that the high priest would offer on the Day of Atonement, looking down upon the blood. And so this idea of the Ark of the Covenant is a, is a really huge deal. And I wanted to briefly share with you just uh, the history of the movement of the Ark. And, and we're going to go through this very quickly but I think if you listen to the recording again, you're probably not going to get it all right now. But you, you, if you, unless you can write lickety split, you know, if you're quicksilver, maybe you could do it. But um, just a quick understanding of where the ark came from, because uh, we're going to be tracking the ark throughout Kings, and we're going to find where it finally it goes missing. And even to this day, we really don't know where it is. But let's start with from the very beginning, because the ark of the covenant we know was created or made in Exodus chapter 25, 25 verse ten. And is, um, and is with the children of Israel throughout their 40-year desert wandering, right, in, in the tabernacle. And then we find out in Joshua chapter 18 that when they finally came into the promised land, Joshua and the children of Israel, that they parked in Shiloh. And there is where the ark and the tabernacle was, and it remained there for hundreds of years. And then go fast forward several hundred years now into just before David's time that the it was taken from Shiloh. Remember in 1 Samuel 4, when they were going to battle against the Philistines, the children of Israel, unfortunately, they began to look at the Ark of the Covenant as some kind of rabbit's foot, some kind of talisman for good luck. And God was not going to have anything to do with that. And, and it's so typical of human nature to look at the thing that God created rather than look at the God who created it. It's one of our weaknesses as human beings. We can we much rather uh, worship a very fine Italian sports car, but we forget that there's a God who 
you know, who's much more grand than anything that we can see, even if it was solid gold and tuned up just nice. It doesn't matter. We worship him. We don't worship the things of that he's allowed or things that he's created. But they did that, and God allowed their ark to be taken from them by the Philistines. So the, the, the children of Israel take the ark out of the temple or out of the tabernacle, excuse me, in Shiloh. They bring it to Ebenezer, where they are ultimately beat by the Philistines. The Philistines take the ark into their possession, and now they take it to Ashdod into their temple of Dagon. And you remember what happens there. The ark stands before Dagon. And the the thing falls down, and the the pieces of it break, and finally uh, the the town starts breaking out. And really, let me just be honest with you: hemorrhoids, emeralds, they call them, and plagues, because God was judging them for stealing the ark. And so they move the ark from Ashdod, their main center. Of, of the Philistines. They take it now to another Philistine city, to Gath. Same thing happens there in 1 Samuel 5, verse 8. Then they finally take it to Ekron. People are still getting the same kind of things. It's spreading like wildfire. And, and now they've got this hot potato of an ark they don't know what to do with. So they send it to Ekron. And then finally, they, they, the ark was in the country of the Philistines for about seven months. And then they take, they finally have had enough of it because they're all sore and sick. So they put the ark on a cart of uh, a new cart of a yoke of cows, and they send it off to the men of Beth Shemesh with golden mice and golden tumors as offerings, hoping to somehow appease the God who did this to them, not realizing that it had nothing to do with mice or their hemorrhoids or anything like that. Uh, but that's what they did because they're pagans. <laughs> and so... The ark is sent from there. Um, the men look inside the, of Beth Shemesh. They look inside the ark. They, they die. God judges them on the spot. And so the ark is then sent to Kirjath Jerim, where it remains in the house of Abinadab for about 20 years. That's about in 1 Samuel chapter 7, first two verses. And then finally, David comes into his reign and he retrieves the ark from Abinadab's house where it had been for 20 years. David attempts to bring the ark, remember, on a new cart. It's recorded for us in 2 Samuel 6, resulting in the death of Uzzah because he tried to touch the ark when the oxen stumbled and the Lord smote him. And so they took the ark from there and they put it into the house of Obed-Edom, who was a Gittite, who was actually a native of Gath one of the Philistine cities. They put it into his house because it was nearby. And it was there for three months. And David's scratching his head trying to figure out, Lord, what's, what's wrong with this picture? What did we do wrong? Finally, David understands. In First Chronicles 15, it tells us why God smote Uzzah. Because they weren't to drive on a new cart. He let the Philistines get away with it, but not the Jews. They knew better. Because the, Philip, the Levites were supposed to carry it on poles. And now they're trying to do it like the Philistines did. And God's not going to let them get away with it. So finally, they do the right thing. They bring it into Jerusalem, into the tabernacle that David had made for it now. And so finally, the ark moves uh, from Zion. And, and that's where we're at right now. It moves from Zion, this area just the southeast of the Temple Mount today. They've actually uncovered it over the last 10 years. And you can visit the, the, where David's palace was. And you can visit all those things if you go to Israel. And it's, it's quite an amazing thing. But the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle was somewhere on that little sliver of land. And you, we, we visit that. You, you go and you walk around and you see David's where he lived in, in these areas. That they can still, there's remnants of this stuff that you can still see. And so 
now, going back here, you know, um, Solomon builds the temple. He says, okay, now it's time. It's time to, uh, to take the temple or take the articles of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and bring them into this new temple that we have built. And so that's where we are at. And so um, let's look at verse 2 now. So he says, therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast uh, in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Now, for those of you who may not know, this month is uh, actually called Tishri. It's the seventh month. Uh, Ethanim means enduring or ever-flowing, speaking of the rivers in the, um, in the area. But this dedication that we are now seeing was postponed for about 11 months. Postponed by 11 months. And, and now they're going to dedicate it on the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, remember, it says this. It says, In the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the 8th month, the house was finished in all of its details. So now we're in the 7th month. So we're, you see what's happening now. There's been a whole 11 months, and they've had the thing done, and now they're waiting until the Feast of Tabernacles. And how fitting that they would do it on the Feast of Tabernacles. Somewhere in around September, October time frame. The Feast of Tabernacles, remember, was the time, it was a commemoration of God's faithfulness to the children of Israel while they were going through the desert those 40 years, how he provided for them, for their food and their clothing and their shelter. And so the Tabernacles is literally little huts, and so that's what they would do. They would build huts, and they even at that time, they would, they would live in huts. And even today, they do the same thing, except they have satellite hookups where they, hook, they can bring in their flat screen TVs. Um, and they do the same thing even today. But a seven-day feast, also called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of the Ingathering. But this timing of the building and the dedication of the building of the tabernacle at the Feast of Tabernacles is interesting, like I said before, because Solomon's temple, it prefigures Christ. It prefigures Christ, and it also prefigures looking forward, actually, to his millennial reign yet in the future to us, in the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, because there's going to be another temple that's going to be built that's going to be much bigger than Solomon's temple. It's going to be much bigger than Herod's temple, bigger than any temple that we've seen thus far in Israel's history. Jesus is going to build a temple. And the outline, the blueprint for it, is given to us in the Bible. And this is, not the, this is not the temple that the Jews are hoping to build right now. The temple they're trying to build right now is going to be for the Antichrist. They don't, they don't know that or they don't believe that. But that temple is meaningless. The one that's next, that's on God's calendar, is the one that he makes. And it's huge. It's a very large complex. Again, and if you want the blueprints of that, and if you want to build it here in Penfield, look at uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 47, roughly. You'll see the blueprint of that. So now in verse 3, it says, All the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Notice, they learned a good lesson. Solomon certainly knew about this incident with David when he first tried to bring the ark of the covenant in, and he wasn't going to make that mistake again, And so, which is a good thing. Whenever we make mistakes, pray to God that everyone around you is learning from your mistakes. 
Because if we can do that, if we can learn from each other's mistake, we'll, we'll be getting along much further and we won't be suffering so many consequences of, of disobedience and sin in our lives. But notice, also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him or with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be numbered or counted for multitude. And then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, which is the Holy of Holies. We looked at that last week, remember? We looked at the model of of Solomon's temple and how large it was. It was roughly about twice the size of the tabernacle. And some of the furnishings on the inside were doubled up, like the the lampstands. The lampstands were doubled. And the lavers outside and the, and the, the basins, they were, they were doubled as well and, and, and actually doubled over many times. But then the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord to its place and the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place. Notice, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles overshadowed its poles. And then the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and there they are to this day. And nothing was in the ark except the two two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, in Hebrews 9, it says something really interesting, and, and this is really not a, a big deal, but you're, you'll probably stumble across it, and it's worth looking at. In Hebrews 9, verse 4, it's speaking of um, certainly Jesus being um, greater than any of those things. The author speaks of, he says, which had the golden censer, speaking of the, the temple, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Now, um, the Bible tells us at this time, at least, the only two articles that were in there were those two tablets. So at some point, these other articles were either taken out or or something, but... um, you know, for the omer of a manna that was in it at some time, you can see that in Exodus chapter 16, verse 33. It speaks of the, the omer of manna that they put in there as a memorial for how God had provided the manna when they were hungry in the desert. So it was sort of set up in memorial, you know, literally, it's like, thank you, God, for what you did. And it was a reminder to them. And also Aaron's rod that budded, uh, you can look at that in Numbers 17, the first 10 verses, it talks all about that. But let's go on in verse 10 here, and it says, And it came to pass, when the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. The cloud filled the house of the Lord. And we believe this is to be the Shekinah glory, uh, which is God's representation of himself, that he was present with his people. Later on in Israel's history, just before the Babylonian siege and destruction of Jerusalem in 586, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. So all this time from Solomon's, when this thing was dedicated, the glory of God was in that holy place and filled the temple up until right before the Babylonian invasion. And God had warned, remember, repeatedly the people of Judah and Jerusalem 
about their idolatry. And they would not turn. They would not repent. And so God, and, and it tells us, and you might want to just write these verses down. And In fact, um, I'll just read them to you quickly because this is significant because this is sort of like that they're losing their bearings. They're losing the very reason that they have this temple was the very presence of God himself. Not even so much the ark itself, but God's presence with them. And isn't it true for us today that if, if God doesn't go before us, then we don't want to go. Didn't Moses say that? Lord, if you're not going to go before us, we don't want to go. But if you're going to go, then we'll follow you. And really that needs to be our same heart attitude today. God, if you're not with me, I don't want to go. I really don't want to go. Even if, I, even if I, it seems like I failed, as long as you're with me, I can deal with that. As long as I have an assurance that you're with me and you're teaching me something, because just because God's with me all the time doesn't mean I'm not going to go through experiences where he's got to show me something about myself. And maybe he's going to do something that I didn't think about. Because we're so goal-oriented. We're always thinking about how can I get to point A to point B the quickest, the best way, and the least amount of money and get the job done even better than the next guy. You know, that's our mentality. And God's like, you know, I'm going to use you, but it's not going to be quite the way you think. Can you be content with that? Can you be content with only doing about that much and, I, and somebody else doing that much? Can you, can you get by with that? I could use you to do the whole thing, but would, are you going to be upset if I just use you for this part? Are you content? Are you willing to do that and somebody else do this? And and it's good for us to be, say, yes, Lord. That's the proper thing to say to the Lord. Yes, Lord. Anything else is my own will being done. Anything else is my will. And it can't be my or your will. It has to be the Lord's way, the Lord's way. But in Ezekiel chapter 10, when God had told them over and over again about their idolatry, finally the presence of God leaves in a very tangible way. It tells us in Ezekiel 10, verse 4, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, this is in the temple, and paused over the threshold of the temple. Now I want you to vision this in your mind. Think of the temple, and it's at the threshold of the temple now, okay? The, 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 holy, you know, the Spirit of God, the presence of God is moving, this Shekinah glory. It's resting now over the threshold of the temple. Now in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18, what does it say? Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And notice in verse 19 it goes, And they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And now the glory of the Lord went from the, 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 the threshold of the temple, now goes even further east over to the eastern gate. He's leaving. And each step of the way, there's a pause. It's almost like the, the Lord's waiting for them to change. Are you willing to change? And he's just like, man, they're just doing the same thing. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing there. They, 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 they've gone too far. And notice now in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 22. Notice this is the sad commentary. The cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord of God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord, notice, went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east of the city, which is the Mount of Olives. So it starts in the temple. It goes to the threshold. It goes to the eastern gate. And now it is on the Mount of Olives, and then it's gone. Then it's gone. And the next time that we see the glory of the Lord appearing in the temple is in Ezekiel 43. And what temple is that? The millennial temple. So last, the next time we see the Shekinah glory coming upon 
the, the temple that Jesus is going to build. And, and it says in uh, Ezekiel 43, again, speaking of the millennial temple, it says, um, And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by the way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now God, because he is the center of it again, the Spirit of God, the very presence of God is there. But between now and then, the Spirit of God is not in the temple. You and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. So the priests, verse 11, back in our text, the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in a dark cloud. And, you know, the, the thing is, as God does, he dwells in unapproachable light. It tells us that in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, that, that he alone, Jesus, has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, which no man has seen or can see. He's also a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24 says that. For the Lord our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And yet, at least in, when he's in our midst or in our presence, he veils himself in this dark cloud. This, this, uh, he veils himself. He did it on the Mount Horeb when he came down on the mountain. Remember, he came down in a thick cloud and thunder and lightning, and they were all frightened at the presence of God. They couldn't see him. All they could see is just this, the thunder and the cloud and the lightning and everything and the horn blaring Psalm 18 is a wonderful psalm that just kind of reinforces this. It says he, uh, Psalm 18, beginning in verse 9, it says, He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew, and he flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. And the Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. That doesn't, if that doesn't sound like power, I don't know what is. But it's a veiling. It's a veiling of who he really is. So verse 13, it says, I have surely built you an exalted house, Solomon says, and a place for you to dwell forever. And so now in verse 14, he's going um, to give a speech concerning the completion of the work. So he says, Then the king turned around and he blessed the whole assembly of Israel with all the assembly of Israel was standing, which I think is interesting. They're all standing at attention. They're not sitting in their chairs with a, you know, a caramel macchiato or a, a Dunkin' Donuts you know, iced tea or something like that. No, they're standing and they're, they've got their eyes fixed on Solomon as he is blessing this and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people of Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And you remember last week we looked at a number of these scriptures in Chronicles and in Kings where this was so. And even back in Second Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, we looked at that quite a bit. But now in verse 17 he says, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it, that it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. 
Nevertheless, you shall not build me a temple, but your son, who will come from your own body, he shall build a temple for my name. And so the Lord has lifted, or fulfilled, excuse me, his word which he spoke, and I, have, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so now in verse 22 Till about verse 53, we're going to see Solomon's prayer of dedication. And you're going to see in this prayer some very interesting prophetic passages. And so um, let's read it. So then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. It's right there in the, in the court. Uh, as you were facing the east, going into the temple, it would be on your right side. So he's standing there before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And he spread out his hands toward heaven. He spread out his hands toward heaven because in heaven is where God dwells. Yes, and no matter where you are on the earth, I know we live on a circular earth, but no matter where you're at on that earth, gravity, thank God, is keeping us on. But wherever it is, when you look up, and you, God dwells in that sphere. He dwells out there that we can't even imagine the, the, the breadth and the width and the height and the depth of the, the kingdom that we maybe can't even be seen with naked eyes. We don't even know exactly where it is. But notice in verse 23, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. And what I like about this is he's just extolling. It's really worship, really. He's saying, God, you're the covenant-keeping God. That's what Jehovah, that's what his name means part of his name he's a covenant keeping God he can keep a promise he's not like me or you where we can make a promise and we just can't keep it no God when he makes a promise because he is almighty God he cannot fail he cannot say something and then not follow through with it or have the power to bring it to pass no he can speak with 100% surety and as he writes his word and even prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, God's not wringing his hands up there thinking, oh my gosh, Elon Musk bought Twitter. This is going to throw, up my, this is going to throw a, a big wrench in the work that I had. No, God already knew from the beginning that that was going to happen. He knew that the, the draft note that from Justice Alito was going to be discovered. He knew there was going to be this upheaval. God knows all things. You can't hide anything from him. He's way ahead of the game. You can't play chess and checkmate God. The devil is no match for God. The devil's a created being. But God, Almighty God, is the only uncreated one. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nobody created them. They were uncreated. They are all one. He says, you've kept your promise to your servant David, and as at this day you have kept your promise. And therefore, verse 25, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if, and remember, that's a, a conditional promise, only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And remember, uh, this is exactly what the Lord spoke to David in 2 Samuel 7. 
And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true. Let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven of heavens, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built for you. And it's true that God is so big and vast. I mean, is he really going to be confined to this little box on the earth? Is he, can he be confined to this little box? No, he can't. But he chooses to dwell with his people, even though God is immense. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, it speaks of the immensity of God. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? I mean, think about that. There's no one like him. This is Almighty God, and this, he demands our reverence. He demands our respect. He demands our worship. And you know, if he was a mere man, we would not worship him, no matter how gifted or talented or wealthy he is. But we can worship Almighty God because he's not stuck on himself. It's not like he needs us. But, you know, as long as we have breath in our lungs, we ought to worship the one who gave us this breath and this body and this things, the, all these things that we have. And he's given us eternity and heaven with him. I think he deserves pretty much all of me, right? He deserves all of me. He deserves all of you. And whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In all that we do, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Everything you do, that is a blessed man, that is a blessed woman. So in verse 28, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people, Israel, when you pray toward this place. Heaven and heaven, or here in heaven, excuse me, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And when anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness." And when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Can you see in this prayer of dedication that Solomon, even rate what we just read, he's prophesying of conditions that will happen in the future. They are going to be defeated before an enemy because they have sinned. And they are going to go to Babylon. And they are going to pray and confess their sin. And God is going to bring them back. And so Solomon here, whether he is knowingly doing this or not, he is prophesying of things that are yet to happen in their future, in Israel's future. Um, in fact, in Leviticus chapter 26, beginning in verse 32, God warns the Israelites concerning their, the consequences of sin and rebellion. 
And he says this to them, and this is before they get into the promised land. He says, I will scatter you, God speaking here, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. And he goes on, and at the very last part of the uh, grouping uh, that I'm reading in verse 40, it says, but if, and here it is, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they have also walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, I will remember the land. And so that is something I'm sure that might be in Solomon's mind. Perhaps. But he's prophesying of something that's really going to happen yet in their future. In fact, in Second Chronicles, we know this verse very well, Second Chronicles 7.14. It's one we heard today as we uh, sent out the thing for the National Day of Prayer today. This is a really great verse. Uh, even though it's uh, specific toward uh, the Jewish people, for the church, it works for us too because the concept is still the same. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray... And seek my face, God says, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. See, that's what we need to do. And I believe we need to do that. I believe the church, we need to do this. We are his people. We need to turn from our sin. We need to lead this charge in our country because no one else is going to do it and they're not going to do it right. But if we confess our sins and walk with the Lord and we do what we're called to do and we love people and we pray to God and we confess those things, is there anything that he won't do? Can he restore the United States? even to a glory that she never had before, a greater glory? Can he do it? I think he can. But you know what? We, he wants to wake us up. Folks, we've been asleep too long. I've been asleep too long. The church in America has been asleep too long. We've allowed things to just go by, and we haven't said anything. And only now are we starting to rise up and say, hey, wait a minute. We've gone too far now. And you know what? Things are happening in the positive, but we need to rise up and pray. Verse 35, he says, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned. So he's given these different scenarios. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when, when they pray toward this place, toward this place of Jerusalem where the temple is, and they confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. And you might want to put a footnote in your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 18. Because there was a time yet future to what we're looking at now where Elijah, after he defeats the prophets of Baal, there, it was during a time of drought 
for, for three years. And after he slaughtered and killed those 450 prophets of Baal, he began to pray. And he went up on Mount Carmel. We visit that place when we go to Israel. He was up there, and he's praying, and he's looking out toward the Mediterranean, looking over to the east, because you can see the Mediterranean on top of Mount Carmel on a clear day. You can see the water. And he's up there praying, and does it three times, and then finally the rain comes. The rain comes. And doesn't it describe exactly what Solomon was saying? When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because we've sinned against you, then, and they pray toward this place, and certainly I'm sure... Elijah was praying toward Jerusalem as he prayed, and God heard, and God answered. Verse 37, and when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, then each one knows uh, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and give to everyone according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. And moreover, concerning a foreigner, and I love this one, and we'll get here in just a minute. I'm going to share something with you that's really interesting. Moreover, concerning a foreigner or a Gentile who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you that all peoples... Underline that. All peoples of the earth may know your name. Not just the Jews. No. All peoples of the earth, that they may fear your name and do as, as your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. And remember, Jesus is not just a, a Jewish Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the world. Remember when uh, the shepherds were in the fields when Jesus was born? And the angels came to them and says, Behold, I bring you good tidings, the angels said to those shepherds. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to only the Jews? No, he says, to all people. That's important for you to know because someone's going to come along and tell you he's just a God of the Jews. No, what I just read to you and this, and there's other places too, he's the God of all. He's the God of all. And foreigners, what's really interesting, write down this scripture reference right here where you're at, here in verse 43. Write down Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. And let me read it to you again. Zechariah 14, verse 16 and 17. And here's why that's important, because in, in, in the future yet to us, we know that Christ will set up his millennial reign. And in this, it says, and it shall come to pass... That everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king in Jerusalem, Jesus, yet future to us in the millennium. They shall come and they shall worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. <laughs> And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. 
Can you see how that works? And, and, and it's exactly prophesying, or that's the, pro, the end of the prophecy for what he was saying in verse 41. Moreover, concerning a foreigner, when they come and they hear about you and they come and you know, hear their prayer, and that's exactly what's going to happen in the millennial reign. All the nations of the world will come up to Jerusalem. On this earth, on this earth, to Jerusalem, to a temple that's rebuilt. Verse 44, And when your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which you have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. And when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, Right, Even Solomon knew, Romans 6.23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm sure he got it in a text message. Uh, you know, he was very much aware of that. And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive in the land of the enemy far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you, in the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned, we've done wrong, and we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all of their heart, with all of their soul, in the land of their enemies who led them away captive, and then they pray toward you, toward, toward the, their land which you gave to their fathers and the city, speaking of Jerusalem, which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have sinned against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them. Now, when did that happen? And Daniel, remember Daniel, as we, as we look back on those several verses I just read to you, Daniel chapter 6, 10, verse, 10 through 12. Remember, Daniel was in Darius's kingdom after Nebuchadnezzar had passed away, and, and there were different kings that came after him, and, and Daniel led a long life. And he was in, uh, during Darius's reign, remember? And Darius wanted to make Daniel, um, he was a very popular guy and a very uh, high magistrate. And the others were getting very jealous of him. And so they trapped him, remember? They went to Darius and they said, hey, let's make a decree that anybody who prays uh, to anything other than you, or, you know, th then you know, we're going to kill him, basically. And he's like, sounds like a great idea. And so he signs the decree. And they knew Daniel, that he always opened his windows in the tower, wherever his room was, and he always faced toward Jerusalem. He always prayed toward Jerusalem, toward the temple. And they're like, now we got him. And they did. Because Daniel, notice what it says. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and he went into his upper room with his windows toward, open toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks to his God, as was his custom since early days. So this is something that he did. Now again, now Solomon is prophesying of something that was going to happen in Daniel's life, in Israel's life. And these men, notice back in verse 11 of Daniel 6, these men assembled and they found David or Daniel praying, making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and they spoke concerning the king's decree. And they said, hey, haven't you, didn't you just sign a decree that every man who petitions any God uh, or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of the lions, and I can imagine the king's going, oh, what did I do? 
And the king answered and said, The thing is true. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. And remember, they put Daniel into the lion's den, and Darius knew that Daniel was being set up. But he made the decree, and, and for his own integrity, he had to follow through with it. And remember his pleadings to Daniel. He's like, Daniel, I know your God can save you. Because I think they had a really great relationship. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made him you know, one of his... Uh, one of the few men under his command. But now he, he was trapped. And now he had to follow through with his order. And he's like, Daniel, I know your God can save you. And that's exactly what God did. Saved him. Now, Solomon could have no idea that this was going to happen. But that's exactly what he prophesied of. And here we see it, we're going to see it as we get into in the future in Israel's history when they finally are taken captive. See, the book of the, the Bible is a book of redemption. And never forget that. It, it is a history book. There is history in it, but it's a very specific history. And it winnows down from the very beginning of Genesis. It doesn't give us all the details about uh, um, you know, Japheth and, and, um, and Ham. It gives us enough, but then it goes forward with Shem, and it follows it all the way down to, you know, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and then to Judah, and then finally to David, and then to, to Jesus. We looked at that, haven't we, a couple, last couple weeks? And that's why it's such a big deal. And so the Bible is all about this book of redemption. It's very specific. It starts off kind of big with the table of nations and then it slowly narrows down the focus right down to Judah and then through David and then to Jesus Christ and the fall of man. All that stuff is for a purpose. And when you see it that way, the Bible makes a lot more sense and then you realize, okay, wow, this is much, in a sense, easier than what I thought. But yet it's not easy. <laughs> And even Artaxerxes, you know, as, as Solomon is talking here and praying, prophesying about the, you know, when they repent and God would return them back to his land, back to their land, did he do that? Yes, he did. Because at the end of the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, wasn't it Artaxerxes, Longimanus, in 445 BC? Didn't he tell them to go? Weren't other kings involved in that too? They sent them and they gave them the money, everything they needed, and said, go back and build, rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls and the streets and everything, the gates that got burned. We'll even fund the whole thing because God put it upon their hearts. Miracle of miracles. Notice verse 51. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt and out of the iron furnace that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people, Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. And aren't you glad that God's got a big ear? He can listen to us and he can hear our cries. He even knows the things in our heart that we're not even speaking audibly. That's why I think it's so wonderful if you have a prayer language. You know, if maybe you have the gift of tongues. And it is a private gift, I believe. I don't think it's meant to be paraded in the church like it has been in, in, the, in the past. It's a, very, it's a prayer language. It's between you and God. And I think sometimes there can be such a burden on your heart, you don't even know what's wrong with you. But all of a sudden, you're just like pouring out this language that you don't even know what it is, but you're praising God and you're giving Him. You're doing some, something's happening spiritually that you're able to communicate in a way and 
and, and, and afterwards you feel like a million bucks because it's like you've got this weight off your shoulders because through the Spirit you've been able to communicate to God and God listens and He knows exactly, even if you are, don't quite understand what happened. You're in control of the gift, but you're not, you may not even be aware of the, the, the complexity of what's really bothering you. Can anybody follow me on that? I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you're like, you know, I just feeling kind of down today and I don't know why. Well, guess who knows? The Spirit of God in you. And if you have that gift, pray for the gift of tongues. It's a personal, beautiful thing. And yet the church has made such a mess of it and now we're afraid of it. Because we don't want anything to, most people don't want anything to do with it because it's been so maligned. But it's one of the most beautiful gifts. It is a beautiful gift. It's not one of the most beautiful, but it's a beautiful gift. But it's a private gift, I believe. And in small gatherings, it can be used. And when it's done rightly, it's a beautiful thing. Love to see the church, all of us, you know, sharing those gifts and being real and genuine about it. And just saying, God, what gifts have you given me? You know, check it out. Ask. Pray. Pray for those. You have more than you think. Many people have the gift of exhortation and they have the gift of giving and they have the gift of administration. They have many gifts and they're all laid out for us in Corinthians and Romans. And um, ask the Lord, what is your gift? And Lord, I want as many gifts as you want to give me to benefit me? No, to benefit the body. And it is a beautiful thing. So go on and verse 54 here. So Solomon, and so it was when Solomon had finished praying all his, this prayer and supplication to the Lord that notice, he rose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. And then he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, blessed be the Lord God who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Didn't Jesus say that? I will never leave you nor forsake you even to the end of the age. (laughs) That he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine in which I have made supplication before the Lord Jehovah be near the Lord our God day and night. That he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each may inquire. And then verse 60, that all the peoples, notice, underline that, all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord, that Jehovah, is God. There is no other. Another little proof text, all the peoples of the earth, not just a Jewish Messiah. You know what I love about the Bible? We're getting close to the end here, but I I just, one of the things I really love is how the Lord, He anticipates things. He anticipates what people might say to you. And then as you read the word carefully, you find that you can use these things. And that's just one good example because there have been many people who would say, well, he's just a Jewish Messiah. He, came, he was born in the line of Judah. He was the Jewish Messiah. Yeah, but he was more than that. No, he wasn't. Yeah, he was. No, he wasn't. And you can, you can go to these verses and say, well, read it and weep. <laughs> that's why it's good to know the word of God. Underline these things. And when somebody tries to pull that nonsense, you can pull your Bible out and just say, you know, Lovingly and respectfully, i got to show you something. Because this is, what, this is what's true about him. 
He's not just a Jewish Messiah. It's for all people, all nations. Capiche? Yeah, excellent. So let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. And then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Now this is going to be a huge sacrifice, a huge worship service. And again, not something that you and I probably would like to hang around and hold hands and, you know, you know I like to teach the world to sing kind of thing. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be bloody. But God is going to accept it. That's why he accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Cain had this beautiful fruit basket from Kittleburger, you know, with crackers and chips and, and, and cheeses and little log of, uh, you know, sausage and, all, and apples and grapes and everything like that. And, and what did uh, Abel show up with? A slain lamb. <laughs> and God accepted his sacrifice, and that's why Cain got so bent out of shape. Yes, a blood sacrifice. You and I would look at it and go, that's worthless, it's ugly, it's death. And God says, no, I accept that. But I can't accept the other thing, the work of your hands. Then the king and all Israel offered sacrifice to the Lord. And Solomon offered, notice, a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, notice, 22,000 bulls. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. And can you imagine that temple mount was just pouring with blood? They, they actually, in, the, uh, in Herod's temple, and I think even in Solomon's, they had a, uh, the, the blood would run down the hill into the Kidron stream, into the, the Kidron Valley, and it would just run red around the time of Passover. And can you imagine what it was like during this? I mean, we're talking huge amounts of blood. And most everybody would be like freaking out and going home and everything like that. And God's like, no, this is, this is right up my alley. And God accepted it. And he filled the temple with his glory. Notice, and on the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings because the bronze altar, the big one that was before the Lord, was too small to receive the burnt offerings. Well, I should think so. Think of all the bulls and all the lambs. I mean, that, that was just too much. You only got so many hours to do this. Think about that. I mean, that's huge. And at that time, Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days. And remember, he did this, we believe, on, uh, on, the, on, the, on the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast. And so notice what Solomon does on this very momentous occasion. He not only does seven, uh, he says... Uh, They did this before the Lord of God seven days, and then seven more days, 14 days. And then on that second second set of sevens, the eighth day, finally, he sent away the people, and they blessed the king, and they went to their tents, notice, joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. I just think that's wonderful, don't you? And so now he brings in the final piece to the puzzle. 
into the temple. And now they've offered it. They've had the, the, the service has started. Now, from now on, the temple would be a very busy place. And they would continue with those sacrifices, all of them foreshadowing, all those seven feasts of Israel foreshadowing in some way Jesus Christ. So awesome, isn't it? And I'm looking forward to being in that new temple in the millennial reign. Can you imagine? Just for a second, think of it. On this earth, folks, on this earth, after the tribulation is over, after the second coming of Christ and we come back with him, he's going to set up his kingdom for a thousand years. And we will rule and reign with him in new bodies. And there will be people that are born. And there's still going to be rebellion, but not like there is now, by any means. Things will be restored to some degree. But what I'm really looking forward to is at the end of the thousand-year reign, when this current heavens and this current earth are dissolved, and then God creates a new heavens and a new earth, and then he brings down this new Jerusalem where he said, I go to prepare a place for you. I believe that it's very possible that new Jerusalem, he's going to set it down, or it's going to be, we don't really know exactly how it's going to be, but he's going to, we're going to dwell in that place, and it's going to be huge. The dimensions of it we looked at when we were in Revelation it would fill pretty much most of the United States, a good chunk of the United States in length, and it's the same length and the same width and the same height. It's a cube, basically, the environs of this new Jerusalem. I don't know how that's going to work, but it doesn't bother me. We're going to have plenty of space. But praise be to God. And I love that he just... He's so willing to share with his servants these things and with us. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this passage. Lord, we thank you for the, the temple. We thank you for what it signifies. Lord, what it foreshadows yet in the future. And Lord, we thank you that you have, uh, Lord, just encouraged our hearts. Lord, that we have such a great expectation. We have such a great future ahead of us, Lord. We don't need to fear Lord, what man would do to us. We don't need to fear what is going on in the world right now, Lord. You have it all under control, Lord. We can trust you. And we do trust you, Lord. And just help us. Help us, Lord. Help us to be carried away as we read these things in your word, Lord. May it totally rapture our souls. That we would no longer be so heavily anchored in this earth, but our head, and our mind, our heart, would be sailing away. And one day, Lord, you're going to do it bodily. And we're thankful for that, Lord. Please bless my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, Lord. Give me a heart that, and, and my brothers and sisters, Lord, give us a heart that res, that's so willing to just desire to be with you and, and desire to turn away from sin in our life and desire to, Lord, uh, to not be silent about what you're doing in our lives, Lord, to be vocal about this to everyone around us. Lord, would you please do that work? And we pray that you would come quickly, and we would ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.